Take your copy of God's Word and open to Ezekiel chapter 23. We have decided to divide this chapter in half. Uh, I'm taking the first 21 verses. Brian assured me that was not half. But he is now a self-professed linguist, so he can have the bigger half. I'm not a linguist. Seriously, this this may be uh, the only time we ever preach through the book of Ezekiel. We don't know. I mean, it's not a book that we we preach every year, every other year. We've never preached it. And so we don't want to just skimp out. It's hard to know where to cover a lengthy chapter and, you know, just move on quickly or where to slow down because there's a lot of repetition in the prophets. You know that if you went with us through the book of Jeremiah, and if you've been through Ezekiel, you know that we've had a bit of repetition. But look, when the people of Israel confessed their sins in Nehemiah chapter 9, it says there, To God, many years you bore with them and warned them by your Spirit through your prophets, yet they would not give ear. I say that to say there is a reason for all of this repetition. It is not here to just fill space. It's not here just haphazardly. And remember the Apostle Paul, Romans 15, writes, Whatever was written in the former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. So there is much good here. Even in all of this repetitious warning, there is good for us. There's good for us. We need to believe that going in. And let me say, if we had some type of issue here at Sovereign Grace Baptist Church in Northport, Alabama, you know, some significant doctrinal and moral deviation going on here in our congregation, I hope you would hear repetitive sermons on the themes that needed to be covered week after week after week just like this. If we're faithful, you would. These people needed to hear what they heard, and that's why God sent Ezekiel to them with these messages over and over. So I guess you figured it out. This is another warning chapter. Uh, you know, a little heads up there. But it is, a little bit, it is a little bit unique to some of the others, so let's get into it and see exactly what's going on. The title this evening is, Israel, the Untrusting Wife. We've talked about Israel the adulterous wife already, but tonight it is Israel the untrusting wife. And in this text, we will see Israel pictured as a wife who did not trust the protection of her husband. And so she sought out protection from another man. That's the picture that's given here in this text. By the way, this is probably a little bit front-loaded, so if you look down at your watch and we're four verses in and it's 7.20. It's okay. We're not going to be here till 9 o'clock. 8.30 at the latest. No laughs. That's great. There they are. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, there were two women, the daughters of one mother. They played the whore in Egypt. They played the whore in their youth. There their breasts were pressed, and their virgin bosoms handled. Ahala was the name of the elder, and Ahalaba was the name of her sister, 
They became mine, and they bore sons and daughters. As for their names, Ahala is Samaria, and Ahalaba is Jerusalem. You know, it is near impossible to get away from this type of language, this, this marriage language here between God and Israel. I've, I've often wondered, you know, if, if we just sometimes forget about all of this language when we start talking about the church. I'm, I'm not suggesting we shouldn't talk about the church at all, but it's surprisingly uncommon in the New Testament to hear the church really described in this way. Generally, those those bridal passages are about the purity of the church. You know, the, the church is going to be like an unspotted bride. As we're, we're not married to the law anymore. We're married to Christ. But this type of intimate marriage language is generally reserved for Israel. And we're not replacement theologians at all. I, I just wonder if we forget this sometimes. Even in Revelation 19, John writes... His bride, or more literally his wife, has made herself ready. You know, when we preach through that, contextually, that almost has to be referring to the repentant, converted nation of Israel who has now repented of her sins and trusted the Messiah that she murdered. And so Jesus returns. Acts 3, if you'll repent, Jesus will return. That seems to be the context there in Revelation 19. And certainly that harmonizes with... You know, very clear Old Testament passages in books like Isaiah and Jeremiah or Hosea or Zechariah or Ezekiel of all places. Revelation 21, describing the glory of the new Jerusalem, which is almost certainly the, the future home of the 12 tribes of Israel for sure. I mean, the foundations are the apostles, 12 Jews. The gates are named after the the twelve tribes of Israel. Here's what it says, Revelation 21. By its light will the nations... I don't, I don't know if you know, that's the Greek word ethnos. We use the word ethnicities today. Gentiles, we would call them. This is the eternal ages. By its light the nations will walk. The kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. The gates will never be shut by day. There will be no night there. They will bring it in... They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. Again, the non-Jewish nations, the ethnos, the Gentiles. God actually intended to save Gentiles from the very beginning. And at the end of the book of Revelation, you find Gentiles in the eternal ages saved. That shouldn't be shocking. It seems to be, I think. Perhaps sometimes we just have sort of an arrogant attitude towards the Jewish nation, just the very thing Paul told us not to have in Romans 11. I'm not, I'm not developing doctrine here. I'm not into the text yet. I'm just sharing my mental ramblings that I'm having as I'm studying through this text and all this bridal language relative to Israel. I'm just, I'm just sharing my own mind games that I play with myself. I hope you brought an umbrella because that's the storm that is my mind. Okay, I didn't mean to derail the entire sermon before we got started, uh, but you need to know the struggles that we have when we're studying. I mean, they're, they're there. Yeah, I'm sure Blake could tell you the, the same thing. You go to passages with preconceived ideas that you have to forget about and, and learn. Anyway, to the text. This passage here, the entire chapter, is another parabolic section in the book of Ezekiel. We found one of these back in 
chapter 16 as well. Though back there in chapter 16, it described Israel as the Lord's wife, similar to what we'll see here, but primarily it was about her being spiritually unfaithful through false worship, through idolatry. And we're going to see that in this one. Israel is seen here in this passage, this chapter, as a wife who not only was an idolater, but she also seeks out protection from her other lovers, refuge from those other nations. So it's almost as though there's a progression from merely having an affair. Boy, I hate to say it that way, merely having an affair. I mean, that's horrendously sinful. But from merely having an affair to actually creating a home with another man. I mean, that's the picture that we're being given of Israel in this passage. She's not just cheating. but She's got another family living over here. I'm sure you've heard of men that had a, had a secret second family. You know, you, sometimes you see that on some of these crazy shows that come on TV. If you want the names of some of them, Wendy can give them to you. It's, it's actually more common than, than you think. I, I assume those men have a lot more money than I got <laughs> if I got two families. But anyway, that's almost the idea here, except there's nothing secret about it. There's no, there's no secret family. Israel has another family and everybody knows. Israel has another husband and, and everybody knows. And in this case, it's not the man. It's the wife that has the other family. All right, let's look at the text. In this parable, there are these two women, the daughters of one mother. I think sometimes there's a danger, especially in some of the parables of Jesus, where we try to make something out of every little point and we build all of these things that aren't in the text. I don't want to do that, but I think there's very clear meaning in this parable. I don't, I don't think we're in danger here. We're, most of this is spelled out perfectly for us in the text. In fact, verse 5 shows us precisely who these two women represent. Uh, or verse 4, excuse me. Samaria is the older of the two, Ahala, while Jerusalem is the younger, Ahalaba. The one mother of these two is almost certainly the united kingdom, the, the kingdom that we saw David reign over, the kingdom that we saw Solomon reign over, as these two, the northern and the southern kingdom, are the product of the split that occurred after Solomon's reign. Under his son Rehoboam, the kingdom split in two. Like they had a civil war and they didn't come back together. They weren't the United States of Israel, right? They were the divided states, the northern and the southern. So just so we're on the same page then, this, and this is important, Samaria, Ahala in this parable, the northern kingdom, has already been judged, conquered, and carried away captive by the Assyrians about a century before Ezekiel got this. That's already happened. We're going to read about it here, but it has already happened. So the Lord is going to talk about the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, but it's the southern kingdom of Judah that is actually being instructed here, not the north. They've already been judged. They're already in captivity. Okay, these two women, here in the parable they're named Ahala and Ahalaba. They were whores in their youth. That's the biblical language. By the way, this language is graphic. I recognize that. I'm not trying to add anything to it. 
I promise you. <laughs> it's easier to sit there than be up here. I promise you. But the explicitness here is to emphasize the atrocity of these sins. There's a, there's a reason. Of this language, Charles Feinberg writes this, quote, Throughout all these descriptions, distasteful as they may appear, it must be remembered that the symbol only faintly conveyed the gravity of the sin which Ezekiel was denouncing. End quote. In other words, it's worse than it sounds. Listen, God hates sin. We just tend to not think about that. He hates false worship. He hates sexual perversion. But God hates sin, period. So yes, this is vivid, but it's not without a purpose. It is intended to be shocking. That's the intent. So the picture is that Ahala, the northern kingdom, Samaria, they let other lovers, other men, fondle them, touch them inappropriately. That's the point. By the way, and I admit this is not the thrust of what's being said here, but young people, it is obvious how God feels about inappropriate touching prior to marriage. It's, it's right here. We don't have to wonder. There's no way to miss it. Your body's a treasure given to you by God, and you ultimately are the one with control over it. Your parents can do all that they can do, and they should, but you're ultimately the one with control. So save your treasure for your spouse. I promise you, you will never regret that. Anyway, when did this whoring of the youth begin, these, these two women? In Egypt. That's not anything new. We've already studied that in the book of Ezekiel. They began to whore with other gods in Egypt before they had ever even entered into covenant with God at Sinai. You say, wow. So in our way of thinking, they cheated before they ever even got married. Well... That's sort of what's being said here. By the way, there's meaning behind these names. Ahala, which is what the northern kingdom Samaria is named here in this parable, it means her own tent. Probably, speaking of the counterfeit worship set up by Jeroboam, when he tried to, to set up a worship style that mimicked what God had said to do down in the south. Ahalaba, the reason I say that is Ahalaba actually means my tent is in her, which without question refers to Solomon's temple, the one that God designed, the one that his Shekinah glory filled, where he dwelled between the cherubim. So God has labeled them. One had false worship, one had the true temple of God, Ahalaba down in the south, Judah, Jerusalem. And then notice this, this marriage language. They became mine. They became mine. And they bore sons and daughters. The sons and daughters probably just refer to this miraculous growth of the nation of Israel. It is amazing how quickly they grew. The citizens, we may say. And as God's, as His wife, it was His duty to protect them. And their duty to trust Him to do so. He said He would. And yet, they didn't believe. They didn't believe. Look, marriage is far more than intimacy. That's pictured here. 
It's also about protection. We'll see that here in this next section, verse 5. Ahala played the whore while she was mine, and she lusted after her lovers, the Assyrians. Warriors clothed in purple, governors and commanders, all of them desirable young men, horsemen riding on horses. She bestowed her whoring upon them, the choicest men of Assyria, all of them, and she defiled herself with all the idols of everyone after whom she lusted. She did not give up her whoring that she had begun in Egypt. For in her youth men had lain with her and handled her virgin bosom and poured out their whoring lust upon her. Therefore I delivered her into the hands of her lovers, into the hands of the Assyrians after whom she lusted. These uncovered her nakedness. They seized her sons and her daughters. And as for her, they killed her with the sword, and she became a byword among women when judgment had been executed on her. Ahala, the northern kingdom. Samaria, sometimes referred to simply as Israel. Ahala was supposed to trust her husband for protection. God had said he would protect them. He was God their protector. But she rather sought out protection from the heathen, specifically the Assyrians. In this, this text it says, verse 7 says, She bestowed her whoring upon them, the choicest men of the choicest men all excuse me the choicest men of Assyria all of them and she defiled herself with all the idols of everyone after whom she lusted so the idolatry is there she defiled herself with all the idols of everyone after whom she lusted we saw that back in chapter 16 we've really seen that throughout this entire book but also there is this trust in the armies of the heathen nation here as well she trusted the armies of Assyria to protect her rather than Yahweh. This part of this condemnation, interestingly, there is an obelisk. That, that's like a, like a stone pillar, if, if you know what that is. Several feet high. It, it's in the British Museum today. It's called the Black Obelisk of Shalmaneser. I assume I'm saying his name right. Maybe he couldn't pronounce it. And it actually depicts King Jehu of Israel paying tribute to the Assyrian king Shalmaneser. Like it's literally something you can go see if you want to get on a plane and go over to the British Museum. You can see it today. You see, Ahala is the epitome of a wife that is completely sold out to another man. Like she, she is in no way faithful to Yahweh. Not only in adultery, as if that's not enough, she was cooking dinner and doing the clothes for this guy. But she has completely got another family. The Israel, it says here again, she was a whore in her youth, but she did not set that aside when she got married. She kept on with it. Again, I know this is vivid. It's intended to be. I'm not apologizing for it. I do recognize that it's uncomfortable. But it shows just how repugnant their sin is in the nostrils of a holy God. All our unrighteousnesses are as filthy rags. And you know, in the Hebrew, that means a minstrel rag. That's what that means. Like, 
We don't, our English translators don't even like putting that in the Bible. But that's what God said. right? That's what He's saying here. Her perfectly holy, righteous, faithful husband was there and she said, I want that guy. You see. Well, because of Israel's sin, God gave them over to the ones they longed for. He said, you want the Assyrians? That's fine. You can have them. Well, the Assyrians then came and conquered the northern kingdom, Samaria, Ahala, as it is here in this parable. They wasted the northern kingdom. They took them into captivity and they restocked all the citizens with foreigners up there. Right? It says here that she became a byword among women. That's how devastating this judgment was that came through the hands of the Assyrians. The idea here is that she became the picture of an immoral woman. In other words, if you wanted to name what an immoral woman was, you said, oh, that's Samaria. That's Samaria. Might be the way that you probably don't want to name your daughter Jezebel today. Or I'll satisfy Blake. It may be the way the police use the name Roxanne, right? To represent a prostitute. Yeah, but you don't listen to that song and think, oh, I think I'll name my daughter Roxanne. No, nobody, nobody's going to do that based on that, right? Now that's how devastating this judgment is. That name actually became code for unfaithful wife. Notice verse 11. Now we're getting to the people that this is actually directed to. Her sister, Ahalaba, saw this. So the sister saw everything that happened to Ahala, the sister. She saw it. Her sister, Ahalaba, saw this and she became more corrupt than her sister. She became more corrupt than her sister in her lust and in her whoring, which was worse than that of her sister. She lusted after the Assyrians, governors and commanders, warriors, clothed in full armor, horsemen riding in horses, all of them desirable young men, and I saw that she was defiled. They both took the same way. In other words, they both did the same thing. They, they, they went whoring after God, not only in idolatry, but also in, a, in seeking to find shelter in this foreign nation. But she carried her whoring further. She saw men portrayed on the wall, the images of the Chaldeans. Okay, this is another group introduced. It was the Assyrians, but here it's the images of the Chaldeans portrayed in vermilion. That's just a color. That's, you know, I initially thought portrayed in rats or something. What is it? No, 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 that's not, that's not right. That's, I had to look that up. That's a color. Wearing belts on their waists with flowing turbans on their heads, all of them having the appearance of officers, a likeness of Babylonians whose native land was Chaldea. When she saw them, she lusted after them and sent messengers to them in Chaldea. So here, we, we, we turn now in this section, beginning with verse 11, we look at Ahalaba, Jerusalem, probably really you know, representing the whole of the southern kingdom here, Judah. That's, that's really who Ezekiel's ministry is to, primarily the captives, but about the southern kingdom as a whole. 
Judah had the witness of her sister Samaria. Her sins she saw. Her punishment she saw. And it didn't do a thing for her. Nothing. I think it was that old German philosopher, uh, George Hegel. I'm sure being German, he pronounced it differently than that, but we'll use English pronunciation. George Hegel. He, he's the guy who said, quote, We ask men to study history. The only thing that man learns from the study of history is that men have learned nothing from the study of history. End quote. Absolutely. And as we watch the United States go the way of ancient Roman Empire, we say amen. But there has probably never been a better picture of that than what we see here in this text. That of the southern kingdom of Judah, who did not have to go very far in history or in miles to see what has happened to an unfaithful wife of Yahweh. Right? They just look across the river. It's right there. In fact, they were even affected by it. But they didn't learn a thing. Look back to Jeremiah chapter 3. Jeremiah, he talks about this too. Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 6. The Lord said to me in the days of King Josiah, what's interesting about this is that Josiah was a godly, King. And yet this devastating prophecy is coming during his reign. Well, we'll tell you why here in just a moment. The Lord said to me in the days of King Josiah, Have you seen what she did? That faithless one Israel, northern kingdom there. How she went up on every high hill and under every green tree and there played the whore. And I thought... After she has done all this, she will return to me, but she did not return, and her treacherous sister Judah saw it. You know, you see, well, we turned over here, very, very, very similar language. Verse 8, she saw that for all the adulteries of that faithless one Israel, I had sent her away with a decree of divorce. Yet, her treacherous sister Judah did not fear, but she too went and played the whore. Because she took her whoredom lightly, she polluted the land, committing adultery with stone and tree, just talking about idolatry. Yet for all this, her treacherous sister Judah did not return to me with her whole heart, but in pretense, declares the Lord. That's why it came in the days of Josiah. It was just pretense. It was a sham. It wasn't real worship. They looked to the outsider like they were worshiping Yahweh, but in their hearts, they were still worshiping all of the idols. God knew it. And so, he says in verse 11, The Lord said to me, Faithless Israel has shown herself more righteous than treacherous Judah. That's precisely what we see going on over here in Ezekiel. Now again, these words were given to Jeremiah earlier in his ministry during the reign of the godly king Josiah, but God knew it was in pretense. He knew it was a sham, and He's already sending Jeremiah there to prophesy. Now, that also means it would have been several decades prior to what we're reading here. But nothing's changed, except now it's very public. There's, there's not even a sham at this point. So the northern kingdom of Israel was unfaithful. 
They were carried off into captivity by the Assyrians. Judah saw it. She refused to change course. It won't happen to me. Well, yes it will, because God says that it will. In fact, Judah, according not only to our text, but to Jeremiah 3 as well, Judah became more corrupt than Samaria. That's clear. That's what the text says. She sought the help from the Assyrians. That's certainly true. But she also sought protection from an up and rising power, the Chaldeans. We, we often refer to them as the Babylonians, right? Nebuchadnezzar, the, the Babylonians. Let's just look at one particular example. Look at Isaiah chapter 39. Now, Isaiah prophesied about a hundred years before Jeremiah. So we're, we're over a hundred years prior to what we're reading here in Ezekiel this evening when we turn over here to Jeremiah 39. Jeremiah 39 verse 1, At that time, Merodach... By the way, Hezekiah has been healed miraculously of a sickness. That's the... That's the context of what's going on. At that time, Merodach Baladan, the son of Baladan, king of Babylon, sent envoys with letters and a present to Hezekiah, for he heard that he'd been sick and had recovered. And Hezekiah welcomed them gladly, and he showed them his treasure house, the silver, the gold, the spices, the precious oil, his whole armory, all that was found in his storehouses. There was nothing in all his house or in all his realm that Hezekiah did not show them. Then Isaiah the prophet came to King Hezekiah and said, What did these men say and from where did they come to you? Hezekiah said, They've come to me from a far country, from Babylon. He said, What have they seen in your house? Hezekiah answered, They have seen all that is in my house. There is nothing in my storehouses that I did not show them. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and all that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And some of your own sons who will come from you, whom you will father, shall be taken away and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. You ought to be thinking, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. I mean, that's, that's who this is talking about. Then Hezekiah said to Isaiah, The word of the Lord that you have spoken is good, for he thought there will be peace and security in my days. That's terrible, right? Oh, this is, this is fine. At least it's going to happen after I die. I won't have to see it. Anyway, Warren Wiersbe actually re- refers to this, this little relationship going on between Hezekiah and this Babylonian envoy that is sent to them. He calls it fraternization with Babylon. They're just becoming... Chummy, we might say. But there's clearly more going on here that meets the eye because there is this condemnation from from Isaiah. They weren't supposed to be chummy with heathen nations. They were supposed to be a separate people. And so this apparent partnership with Babylon would actually finally be the downfall of Judah. Remember, the Samaritans or the, uh, the Samaria made this partnership with the Assyrians and the Assyrians conquered Samaria. 
Then the southern kingdom Judah makes a partnership with Babylon, and guess what? The Babylonians conquer Judah. Same exact pattern. One thing we learn from history is that we never learn anything from history. We actually see Judah making various covenants with Babylon a number of times in the prophets. We, we see that several times in the book of Jeremiah specifically. If you were with us in that, you probably re- remember that. All right, well, th- these description of these men here in the, in the text, in, back in Ezekiel 23, in verses 13 and 14, I saw that she was defiled. They both took the same way, but she carried her whoring further. She saw men portrayed on the wall, the images of the Chaldeans portrayed in vermilion, wearing belts on their waists, flowing turbans on their head, all of them having the appearance of officers, a likeness of Babylonians whose native land was Chaldea. All of this description pictures the Babylonian army. And the idea here is that Judah rather than trusting God for protection, sought out help from the Babylonian army, as if God couldn't conquer them. I mean, it's like they had forgotten that God wiped out 180,000 Babylonians in one night, or Syrians, excuse me, in one night. He could do the same thing with the Babylonians. That's not a problem for God. But no, she'd rather trust the Babylonians than her own husband. See, that's the picture. Here, she was guilty of idolatry. That's been clear. But this picture is more than just an adulterous wife. Again, she she slept around, that's sure. But at this point, she had actually committed her care to another man. She trusted in the Babylonian Babylonian army more than she trusted in the God of the universe who created the world. She'd long since forgotten the words penned by King David in the 20th Psalm when he wrote, Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They'd forgotten that. Well, it says in verse 17, The Babylonians came to her into the bed of love. They defiled her with a grieving, whoring lust. And after she was defiled by them, she turned from them in disgust when she carried on her whoring so openly and flaunted her nakedness. I turned in disgust from her, and I had turned in disgust from her sister, as I had turned in disgust from her sister, yet she increased her whoring. Remembering the days of her youth when she played the whore in the land of Egypt and lusted after her lovers there, whose members were like those of donkeys and those uh, whose issue is like that of horses. Thus you longed for the lewdness of your youth when the Egyptians handled your bosom and pressed your young breasts. So the other man, not her husband, the other man, the Babylonians entertained Judah's advances. They came to her in the bed of love and they defiled her with their whoring lust. They mixed the worship of Yahweh with the Babylonian deities. And they promised protection to Judah as long as she remained a loyal vassal state. Pay your taxes, we'll protect you. 
I halfway want to believe the Babylonians intended to stand by that treaty. We'll never know. We'll never know because Judah didn't keep her end of the bargain. That's the problem here. I, I, I want to believe that they were satisfied for that tax money to keep rolling in. You know, I, I say that because I, I know what politicians love, and that's tax money, right? The crazy thing? Judah sought out another man and sought out another man and sought out another man and sought out another man, finally won the man, got the protection from Babylon, and then she almost immediately rebelled against that man, rebelled against Babylon. That's what's meant here when it says, after that she was defiled by them, she turned from them, the Babylonians, in disgust. All this is so public. And it dishonored the name of Yahweh. That's the problem. And we've seen that throughout Ezekiel. God is concerned for His name. So notice verse 18. When she carried on her whoring so openly and flaunted her nakedness, I turned in disgust from her as I had turned in disgust from her sister. But God was not going to allow His name to be dishonored any longer by His wife. That's the point. And yet, despite the repeated attacks upon the land by the Babylonians, despite the constant warnings from the prophets as to why the attacks were coming... Judah increased her whoring. That's what it says here. In our day, we might say she lived like a bunch of rabbits, reproducing, you know. They use different animals here, but it's the, it's the same idea when they talk of donkeys and horses. It's the same idea here. Judah was like the woman who learned to play the whore early in life to us. That's in grade school. She never repented. She never changed her ways. She was that throughout her marriage until ultimately she's carried away captive. That's the picture we are to have. She maybe have been faithful here and there, reign of David, reign of Josiah, whatever, but for the most part, she continued to cheat on her husband, and he was ever faithful to her. All right, we're not going to get into verses 22 through 35 or even after that, but there are coming these four punishments threatened against Judah for all of this infidelity. That's what's going to be announced in the next section. That's why we're starting here, because if we, if we went on, we'd have to go all the way through verse 35. So we're just going to start here at 21. It looks like, time-wise, we made a good call. So look, we need to learn from history. This is real history. Look, what you, what you find in a history book may change, right? I mean, they change all the time. They're rewriting American history as we speak. This is true history. And we need to learn from history. We need, to, we need to glorify God and be the mouthpiece to the world He has called us to be. They failed. They were supposed to be a light to the nations. They weren't. Well, that's what we've been called to be. We need to be unlike what we see here in Israel. Right? It is very difficult for me, as I studied this this week, not to think of the book of Hosea. There are some... Very very, very similar pictures going on in the book of Hosea as went on in this chapter. Hosea, the prophet Hosea, such an interesting story. If you don't know it, let me just really quickly, I'll tell you. Prophet Hosea is told to go take a prostitute as his wife. You say, man, I'm glad I'm not a prophet, right? So he went and took one. Her name was Gomer. She was never faithful. She was unfaithful from seemingly the first day. God had this picture because Gomer 
pictured Israel and Hosea pictured God. That's that's the parable, the, the living parable there. Ultimately, God is seen in Hosea chapter 2 to put her away, much the way that He says He did in Jeremiah. There he'd written her a bill of divorcement. However, listen, listen to this in, in Hosea 2. There's this promise. He begins to talk about a future day. He says, In that day, declares the Lord, you will call me husband. You say, well, is, is God sovereign or something? Yes. Does He know the future? Yes. Can He make all this happen? He can. Yes, absolutely. In that day, declares the Lord, you will call me husband and you will no longer call me my Baal. For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth and they shall be remembered by that name no more. I will make a covenant on that day with the beasts of the fields, the birds of the heavens, the creeping things of the ground. I will abolish the bow, the sword, war from the land, and I will make you lie down in safety. I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice and in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness and you shall know that I am the Lord. That's the same thing that we've seen in Ezekiel. You will know that I'm the Lord. But God is going to break them. That is so hard for us to believe in the middle of Ezekiel 23 where they are here. What's being described? You're like, this is just a no win for anybody. No. God's going to accomplish His purpose. He he is. It's not hard for God. It's not going to be easy on Israel. It's actually going to be quite hard. But God's not going to fail. How's He going to do it? How's He going to bring it about? We've been studying that for a long time. We've been studying that for a long time. We've studied it in Ezekiel. We've been looking at it in 2 Corinthians. Here's how God's going to do it. Jeremiah 31, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant. A new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. But the old covenant law never worked. You know, when we're reading Ezekiel 23, we ought to be thinking, old covenant law, it it didn't work. Because it didn't. It attempted to change man from the outside in. And that doesn't work. But the new covenant gospel, it changes people from the inside out. That's precisely what the new covenant promises. And it it all hinges on Jesus hanging on Calvary's cross and paying for our sins. He was buried. He rose again when we believe the Holy Spirit indwells us and enables us not only to believe, but to obey. Right? That's, that's, that's the whole point of the new covenant. That's the only hope Israel actually has. They don't have any hope in the law. That, that's been proven by this point. But they do have hope in Jesus. There are not two Gospels. There's not a gospel for the Jews and a gospel for the Gentiles. There's one gospel. There's one Savior. There's one way. And that's the finished work of Jesus Christ at Calvary.
Stand with me, if you will.